Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis. Folks, we have a gem for you today. Dr. Richard D. Wolf is professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University, New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. His latest book is the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself and is available along with his other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism at www.democracyatwork.info. For those of you who are not new to politics and right, you know we've covered this book before, but he's released it as an ebook. Now, welcome to Politics and Right, Richard Wolf. How are you doing today? Okay, Egbert. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So now, um, first of all, uh, before we get into the pandemic, before we get into any of these other issues, have you heard about ERCOT in Texas and the blackouts in Texas? I, just off the wall, I wondered if you heard about it. Yes, I have. I've heard all about it. I've been following it. And I, I've got to tell you, it, it for me, it really is connected uh, in a particular way to COVID-19 and to the uh, economic disaster we are living through. And, and here's the way. There really is no excuse for not being prepared. I mean, this, this has to be called out for what it is. Every four to seven years, the capitalist economic system crashes. Sometimes the crashes are deep and last a long time. Sometimes they're shallow and they don't. But every four to seven years, suddenly, people are thrown out of work, businesses cut back, uh, communities don't get the tax revenue they need. We know this. It's been true for hundreds of years. There's no excuse not to be prepared. Second example, we have had viruses from the beginning of the human race, if not long before. You know, we had a horrible one back in 1918 that killed uh, 700,000 people in America. We've had SARS and MERS and Ebola. We know that the human community is at risk from viruses that can do terrible damage. You have to be prepared for that if you aren't crazy. That's what we have a government for. And here's the last one. The state of Texas has been subject to extremes of weather in the summer, incredible heat, incredible heat waves, which guess what? Use a lot of electricity. Okay, this time they have something a bit more unusual, the other end, cold. But since they use electricity, it must have dawned on somebody with a third grade education that you need to have standby capacity to handle unexpected demands, whether it's heat or it's cold or anything else. There is no excuse. I noticed Governor Abbott immediately did what I call the Trump dance. He discovered some obscure council in, in Texas and blamed them. It's like Trump blaming poor immigrants coming from Latin America or the Chinese, or I mean, it is this unspeakable failure 
not to be prepared when there's no excuse, and then finding somebody to scapegoat for it. It really is a sign of a society that is in deep trouble and not getting better. You know, Dr. Wolf, in, in you explaining that there are a lot of issues here in Texas with, um, with them not wanting regulations, and you talk about uh, capitalism. Uh, I, I covered this on our program, in fact, just before this show with you today, in that all, the, all our endemics, all, all the things that we've had so far, uh, the system that says we want less regulation, we want less control, we want less taxes, they continue to cause us more harm. In Texas, as we had, the windmills froze because they didn't put the right windmills in. The <laughs> gas lines froze because they didn't put the right regulations to run the gas right now. We don't have a capacity issue in Texas. We have a regulation issue. We have a what I call a capitalism issue. Now, let's get on to what your uh, this book is because I, I you know, the, the table of content is self-explanatory. I mean, everybody needs to just see the table of contents and then they're gonna wanna go ahead and get the book right away. And it starts out with uh, one thing, capitalism crashes again and COVID-19 was not the trigger. I was so happy you stated that because before COVID-19, we covered on Politics Done Right why it was imminent that this economic system was gonna have a crash pretty darn soon. Why don't you bring some meat to that theory? Okay, I'd be glad to. Let me begin by surprising some people. Uh, not only are you right in what you just said, but if you were reading the financial press, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, um, Bloomberg News, any of them, you would have known that in the years 216 to 17 to 18 to 19, the financial press that loves capitalism was all speculating because they know that it crashes every four to seven years. They know that the last crash was in 2008. So do the math. If it's four to seven years and the last one was in 2008, as soon as you're in 2016, you're over the average. And so it's now becoming a betting game as to when the inevitable will come. Everybody was expecting it. And as each year went by, we reminded one another, those of us who work in this business, that there's a sad reality, which is if you have longer than average between your crisis, it usually means that the crisis when it hits will be worse than if it had hit more on schedule. You know, it's like not going to the doctor for your checkup and then going two years later and being told by the doctor, it would have been a lot better if I had seen you sooner. It's the same kind of thing. So for me, it, it's crystal clear. If it hadn't been COVID, it would have been something else. And, and the way to prove it is to remind people this is the third crash of capitalism in the 21st century. The first one was in the spring of 2000. It got the name of the dot-com crisis. Right. All right. In 2008, we had the second one. It got the name subprime mortgage crisis. And so this one gets the name COVID-19. But you notice something? Three crises, we're 21 years into the century, 
That works out to an average of every seven years, just like we know. There's no surprise. The COVID-19 is not the problem we have. It makes our problem worse, no question. I mean, you know, in the Great Depression, we had a terrible crash in the 1930s, but at least we didn't have a terrible public health disaster at the same time. This time, we are in really deep territory, uncharted territory. We've never done this before. We have an economic crash and a big one, and we have a once-in-a-century public health catastrophe, and they're happening at the same time. Each one makes the other one worse. But you're not going to fool anybody, and you're certainly not going to solve a problem if what you think is going on is a bad disease. No, 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 no. There is certainly a bad disease. But that's why I titled the book what it is. The real disease we have to worry about is the one that crashes every four to seven years. And you know what else, doctor? And, and, and please put some meat on this for me. As, as we, first of all, after we got informed about this disease, it seemed like it was in the interest of some that this disease further metastasized because it has become a wealth transfer engine and more than a wealth transfer engine, a method for taking the money of most, the incomes of most up to a select few. Amazon is now even bigger as mom and pops are gone. Uh, Walmart is even bigger as others that were in the market were told to close. There was no governmental support to really keep these things, uh, to keep a status quo until the pandemic was over. Why don't you tell me why it is that only with something other than capitalism that you can actually have a system that takes care of who we should be taking care of, humanity? All right, let me start with the inequality. You are absolutely right. There are two kinds of inequality that are being heavily increased or worsened during this pandemic slash economic crash. The first one is the inequality between labor and capital, between people who live by working and people who are sitting at the top of the economic pyramid. I mean, and nothing, Nothing is easier than for me to give you a couple of examples. We currently have roughly 65, and this is a number people should think about, 65 million Americans have filed for unemployment compensation at one time or another since March of last year. Some of them have been unemployed the entire time. Others have only been unemployed a few weeks and everything in between. But here's something to remember. If you're unemployed, and if you have to wait a couple of weeks or more to get your unemployment compensation, and even if you do, you're going to be in trouble financially. You're going to have to take whatever savings you have and use them up. You're going to have to lean on your relatives, your friends, your neighbors to help you at a time when they're in financial squeeze time as well. So you have really whacked the working class. 65 million people unemployed. That's more, much more than a third of the labor force yes. in this country. 
more than one out of three have been through that experience over the last 11 months. That is a staggering reality. At the same time, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, Jeffrey Bezos, I'll pick him out, the head of Amazon, saw his wealth go from roughly $125 billion, that's with a B, up to around $200 billion. Okay, this is more money than any, you'd have to go back to ancient Egypt and the pharaohs to, to get this kind of, look at what I just told you. 65 million people really giving up pretty much whatever safety cushion of money they might have had, desperate in many cases, not knowing how long this will last, how bad it'll be, whether that job will even be there when it's over. I mean, and then other people becoming wildly wealthy. Here's a second example. I took the 15 most successful hedge funds on Wall Street. And I asked the question, how did they do during the year 2020? Because we now have the results. Okay. The, the, of the top 15, and there are many more, there's you know, a thousand of them, but the top 15, number 15 earned $846 million. Number one, earned $3 billion with a B. Wow. Now, to help people understand what it means, I know it's difficult. Here's what I did. I asked myself, if, if this gentleman got $3 billion, how much does that work out per week for a 52-week year? So here's your answer. Excess of $52 million a week. He doesn't buy lottery tickets because he doesn't need to. He wins the lottery every day without buying a ticket because he's the other side of the coin of the millions of us who buy an occasional ticket and never win anything or not enough to make a difference. So you're making inequality much, much worse between those at the top who own shares, you know, who are the people who, the tiny minority who sit at the top and the vast majority who don't. But there's a second example. Big business is destroying little business. The little businesses cannot survive this kind of situation. Something like a third to a half of all the restaurants that have had to close have closed permanently. They're not coming back. They're not making it on taking, out, taking food out or prepare, none of that. that. Some of them are surviving on that, but they'll never get back to where they were. And the government help so far has been very, very inadequate. Again, a couple of examples. The government has postponed eviction. So if you're unable to pay your rent, or if you're unable to cover your mortgage, uh, here's what happens. You can't be thrown out of your home, and that's now been extended into most of the rest of this year. But here's something to remember. Number one, all of those rents you didn't pay, 
you still owe them. Number two, the landlord is allowed to charge interest for not for you're not paying. So you owe the money on the rent plus the interest plus the landlord is legally allowed to penalize you for not paying. So people who couldn't pay the rent are going to owe the accumulated rent plus interest plus penalty. This is ridiculous. They're going to arrive at some point down the road, two months, six months, nine months from now, and we're going to be right back where we are now, having used up their savings. I mean, this is impossible. Now, let me give you the last of it. Many, many small businesses have not been paying their rent. Okay, that means the mall owner isn't getting his rental payments. And the business, the building owner in which the store is located isn't getting their rental. Okay, they're not getting money. They're turning around to their banks, holding mortgages and saying, I can't pay the monthly mortgage because I'm not getting the monthly rental from my tenants. So the catastrophe of the mass of people fearing eviction is multiplied by the catastrophe of the small businesses and the catastrophe of the landlords and the catastrophe of the government. What you're building up to, I don't mean to scare folks, but if I didn't tell you this honestly, what use would I be? You are accumulating too many problems. It would have been hard to solve any one of them, but you've got a dozen, the pandemic, all the damage done by the people who died and the people who got sick and the economic crash and now the accumulated non-rental payers and non-mortgage covers and landlords and small business. It is, it is not only unbearable, these are the vast majority. And they're going to be looking at the shrinking number of people doing really well, you know, the Amazons, the Apples, uh, you know, all of that. And the gap between the experience of the two is going to be visible in a way that is going to drive people crazy. I would even argue, not that it's the most important thing, but part of the upset driving those uh, crazy people on the 6th of January at the Capitol, part of it is their having a sense, rightly, that the economic system they thought they were living in isn't there and it isn't about to be brought back and that they're looking at a, an abyss into the future and they want to do something. And yeah, they, they start thinking crazy stuff and QAnon and all the rest of that. But don't forget, at the base are human beings that are suffering, even if the way they handle it only makes it worse. You know, uh, there's a part of your book, uh, Capitalism and Pandemic, Social Illnesses That Affect Us All. And in there, you include all the isms that, that that's used. And in fact, some of those people who attack the capital, instead of looking at the, at the reasons for their demise, they, they, they've, taught, they've been taught otherwise. But before I, before I go to the other question, because this is something that gets to me all of the times, because you, you brought it up when you talk about Jeff Bezos. When you talk about Jeff Bezos going from $120 billion to $200 billion, Americans were indoctrinated into believing 
that somehow because somebody started something, I am an engineer, I created a product that all the wherewithal from that product belongs to me, not taking into account that I was educated, uh, Dr. Wolf, with the tax dollars that you paid, that all these things that made me, gave me the ability to create something came from us all. So right. somehow now I am supposed to be worth all the billions that's generated from others who work my product. Why don't you explain a little bit where we have to change our frame of minds into not believing that our invention, our immediate success belong to us all and all profits made from that belongs to that one individual as opposed to the collective that's really where a society where all of this was created. I'd be glad to. Let's start with the, the reality that whatever you think of Mr. Bezos, we'll stay with him, Jeff Bezos. He's as good an example as any of the others. Uh, whatever you think his contribution was, there were millions of people for thousands of years who have developed over time the understanding of electricity, the understanding of mathematics, the understanding of what it means to organize a supply chain, uh, to do all the work that goes into an Amazon delivery of a package. None of them are making money out of what they did. You know, Mr. Bezos had a mother and a father, and Mr. Bezos had a school teacher, and Mr. Bezos had a dozen people that were important in his life, getting him to where he is. But we live in a system that doesn't have them share in the reward. Along the way, Amazon got all kinds of subsidies from governmental agencies to help them build a building, uh, a road made to one of their distribution centers so the trucks could get in and out. Those are contributions to the success over time that he had. There's absolutely no reason to exclude all of the people who made contributions along the way, the other companies, the government agencies, the people who worked hard, the teachers, the they get nothing out of all of this because of our peculiar system that gives it to one person. There's no need for that. If you want to recognize that he came up with, let's be, let's be very generous. He came up with a clever way to speed up package delivery. I mean, that's what he is. He delivers packages. He organized that. Good. Give him a reward. Give him a Nobel Prize. You know what the Nobel Prize is for a breakthrough in science? It's under $1 million. Give him that. Nobody would object. A good recognition of the fact that he was creative in a particular way. Give it to everybody who comes up with a really useful idea. There is no need and no justification to take away money from millions of people to give him not one million, but a $200 billion. And the only way you can do that is if there are people working day in and day out, producing more value than is paid to them in their wages, with the difference between what they add by their work versus what they get for working, that goes to Mr. Bezos, so he can collect a vast amount of money. It really is disgusting. And, and I mean that word because it's also now possible. And, and I want to drive it home again around Mr. Bezos, although we could use others. 
We have millions of people really suffering now. We have a catastrophe. Mr. Bezos didn't create the pandemic, but he is making a bundle. He didn't do anything to deserve the extra bundle. He's just sitting there with the right business purely by chance, whereas some other person working his or her tail off running a small restaurant is wiped out. It's not the fault of the people who got wiped out that there's a pandemic, and it's not the fault of Mr. Bezos, but one of them ends up with billions and the other one is ruined for life. A decent society wouldn't let that happen. You know, even Donald Trump referred to the struggle against pandemic by saying, it's like a war. It's like we're fighting a war. Well, let me remind Americans of something. The last time we fought a major war, World War II, we did not allow some people to earn billions. We had something called an excess profits tax. You got more than a certain amount. The government went and said, this is a national crisis. We're fighting against the fascists in Germany and in Italy and in Japan. And we're not going to allow some people to become billionaires and other people give their lives to fight in the war. That's an inequality we will not tolerate. So we also had a rationing system. We gave people tickets. And let me mention that. We gave people ration tickets. You couldn't go get a quart of milk or a pound of coffee or a gallon of gas for your car and simply give money. And the reason we did that was because those things are scarce in wartime, if we did that, the only people who could afford it would be the people who are rich. And that would destroy the solidarity of our country fighting a war. So here's what we're going to do. You want to buy a gallon of gas or a pound of coffee or a, you know, a quarter pound of meat? You need a ration card printed by the government. And here comes the best part. You know how it was distributed, the ration card? According to people's needs. If you had a lot of kids in your family, you got more ration cards for milk. That way, rich people couldn't buy the milk for their pet rather than have human beings unable to give milk for growing children. We know what to do to handle a national crisis in a way that's fair. We've done that. This time we have a government, Republicans and Democrats, so totally controlled by corporations and the rich that they don't even discuss doing that, even though it's part of our history. For me, the, the scars from this inequality between big and small business, between workers and capitalists, those are going to run very deep and last very long. And they will shape our history long after COVID is a bad memory. That is such a good point. Now, it's interesting because we have a young, the, 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 there's, we have a young woman, 29 years old, that runs the Harris County, Texas, the second largest county in the, in the country. And what she has instituted for COVID-19 is that uh, she's not going to force folks to just go ahead and type and refresh, refresh to, to get a vaccine. She mm -hmm. made it equitable by saying everybody 
put in when they can, and it'll be a real lottery as far as who gets the vaccine first. Now, I call what you've just described, Dr. Um, Wolf, antiseptic slavery, because right. it's a form of slavery that, that just a bit more palatable to people. And until we explain it that way to many, they don't get it. Now, how do we get around the indoctrination that we get into people into believing that your worth is something that you purported to create? We have to change the mindset of people into realizing what you've just stated. That is, it's a collective that have created a Bezos. It's a collective that have created every capitalist that think they did it on their own. Right. That's always been true. I, I think the best way to understand it is to appeal to something I think is in most Americans, despite so many years of indoctrination. Somehow they know and they admire what it means to play teamwork. Sure, you admire this athlete and you admire the other one. But you know, most Americans understand that a winning team takes teamwork. That yeah, some players are better than others, but the crucial thing that will make you win is not having one of the superstars, but having a relationship among the team players that they all work together, that they have a collective idea, a collective feeling that they support one another. And I think you destroy that if you give one of them wild amounts of money and don't give the others that amount of money. That breeds inequality, that breeds bitterness, envy, and that destroys communities. I think that's what it's doing in this country right now. Yeah, in the short run, the rich get richer. But you know something? In the irony of history, in the end, this kind of inequality, like it would on any sports team, destroys the team spirit, destroys the helping one another mentality that makes you win in the end. And so what you end up having is two or three stars and another bunch of people that are bitter about how they're not recognized and then the whole thing falls apart dr wolf last question what would you have liked me to ask you that i didn't ask you uh to to make this even better the only thing would have been and you did ask me so this is more my fault than yours what what, what can we do and let me end with this we don't need to run our enterprises the way we do that's the root of our problem in my judgment we allow a tiny group of people, the owner of the company, the person who started it, if it's a corporation, the board of directors, usually a group of 15, 20 people, they are a tiny minority, but they sit at the top of the factory, of the office, of the store, and they make all the decisions and they have all the power. The rest of us are employees. They are the employer. That's not democratic. We don't vote for them. We have no power over them. If they don't like us, they fire us. Not only do we lose our job, we lose our income. We put our families in danger. This is a fundamentally unfair, unjust system. Here's the irony. If Americans were half as committed to democracy as they say they are, they would institute democracy in the workplace. One person, one vote, we all decide what happens in this factory, in this office, and this store. And guess what? 
we would never democratically decide to give one person $200 billion while the rest of us cannot pay for our kids to go to college. Professor Dr. Richard D. Wolf, author of The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so kindly for being on Politics Done Right. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, and thank you for your program, which is an important part of the national conversation. Inan, Anan Hidatidadas breaks it down. He talks about that immature, very socially limited Elon Musk, the billionaire. Anand's latest piece for the New York Times is titled, This Week, Billionaires Made a Strong Case for Abolishing Themselves. Uh, Anand, you write this in part, quote, Elon Musk is running Twitter into the ground with much of the company's staff fired or quitting, outages spiking, and everyone on my timeline hurrying to tell the app the things they have been meaning to say before it departs. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, made a big splash when CNN released an interview in which he announced he was giving the great bulk of his more than 120 billion dollar fortune away just minutes after his philanthropy announcement on cnn news broke amazon would be laying off thousands of workers then of course there was sam bankman fried the disgraced crypto kingpin whose spectacular downfall along with that of ftx the company he founded caused 32 billion dollars to disappear much of it belonged to hundreds of thousands of regular people finally of course this week there was donald trump on Tuesday night, he addressed a crowded room at Mar-a-Lago and, as expected, announced he was going to run for president again. So, Anand, I'll let you flesh out the case a little bit here. You know, uh, first of all, I, I think something we often forget as Americans is that billionaires exist as a class of people who have that much money at our collective pleasure. Right? It is a policy choice to allow some people to accumulate that much money, hundreds of billions of dollars in the case of people in the United States, before everybody has the chance to live with dignity, right? Other countries make that choice very differently. We have chosen historically to heavily prioritize having billionaires over having dignity for all people. And that's a choice I would just start by saying that we could make differently in the future. And so I wrote the piece to try to remind people uh, of that choice we have. And last week was remarkable. I mean, I, I've written about billionaires for years and talked about uh, these issues on the show. But it was hard to imagine a week uh, when there were so many spectacular reminders of the way in which this kind of billionaire class is, is inconsistent with democracy as we live it. Elon Musk uh, is, is, you know, is a sort of adolescent in his 50s. Everybody can see that. I don't think anybody would say Elon Musk is a normal 51-year-old man um, who has bought this platform that he himself calls a global town square, certainly functions, has that kind of social importance. And because of what is so evidently his own feeble limitations, he's just not, he's a limited man. His limitations become all of our problem. They ramify into all of our lives. They start to, you know, un, uh, unleash anti-Semitism because he wants Kanye back on the platform. And Kanye announces Shalom when he comes back after his, his big uh, anti-Semitism benders in recent years. He brings back Donald Trump, who's, who's kind of unleashed 
the 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 white nationalist demons in this country uh, on that platform and off in ways that are obviously have caused us to come to the brink of losing our democracy. Elon Musk's big idea is let's bring him back. He's gutted the company. Photos of him from the company at a so-called code meeting show that there's basically like no women left working around him. It's just a big sausage fest in there working, you know, in the team that he has remaining around him. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the week was was Jeff Bezos doing this big song and dance about philanthropy. Well, then an hour later, his company lays off thousands of people, thousands of people right before Thanksgiving, going home, having to tell their kids, mommy or daddy doesn't have a job anymore because of this guy who's apparently giving money away uh, to pe help people, I guess, like us who don't have jobs. Uh, you have Sam Bankman-Fried, an incredible example of someone who had these protect. He wasn't even into philanthropy in this moment. He was still just making money and telling us that simply the way he was making money was going to help all of us. He was going to smash the system, man. He was going to bring down the big banks and he was going to create this new era of, of finance for everyone. You could all get in on the crypto thing. And he just lost everyone's money. He makes the big banks look good by comparison. And then, of course, Trump, um, who I always have appreciated. He's not even necessarily an actual billionaire, but I've always appreciated the nakedness. Unlike some of these other guys, he doesn't do a very good job of pretending that he's for the public benefit. Uh, he certainly ran on a campaign of smashing the system in 2016, but but he is very nakedly revealing what I think is true of this group in general, which is that their existence as as billionaires is sort of antithetical to our flourishing as a democracy. He hits the nail on the head. This is about having an, a fraudulent economic system. It's legal because that's the laws that we pass that takes away your worth, take away your income and concentrates it to a few. And then they go out and say, we've earned this and you know we are paying enough taxes as it is already. And it, a lot of people kind of believe that because in reality, they pay more taxes than we do. But that is because they stole all our money and that tax that they're paying is just given back. Look, we've discussed this subject a whole lot of times. and. When one is indoctrinated from birth, it's hard to reprogram one's mind. I had to reprogram my mind to understand it. And let me tell you, uh, it's a club that you have to be invited to, but you don't have to be invited into one that does make quite a bit of money. And I can, I can tell you, folks, we have to be cognizant of what's going on because it's unsustainable. And if we don't do and start doing uh, what it takes to solve this problem now, the pitchforks are coming. And the problem with when the pitchforks come is they won't first be getting the billionaire class or whatever. It's going to be that initial fight among the peons that then escalates. So, folks, let's let's get with the program. Let's make sure to start passing policies that gets back all that money that was taken on our backs. Welcome to our first edition of Politics Done Right outside of Netroots, or rather in the Netroots Nation Conference here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as our first guest today, we have Vic Usamary. Vic Usamary. I noticed I paused because I wanted to make sure to get Usamary correctly. Vic, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you. Hey, Vic, um, we, we've, we're here trying to... Uh, Unite folks here on the in the progressive uh, domain and and learn about different policies, etc. And one of the things that I've been very interested in is healthcare. Mm -hmm. Now you are I, I call you an expert because you've lived in both systems. You've lived in the American healthcare system 
and you've lived the Canadian healthcare system. First of all, just an absolute term, which is the better system? Um, like every business system, and, right. I, and I'd characterize these as business systems. I right. mean, we tend to put magic in there. That's It's magical healthcare, medicine, uh, Ouija board, and all kinds of right. stuff. They re really are trying to uh, deliver, systematically deliver healthcare services to the population. So in America, American uh, has U.S. has one system. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada has another system. There are probably thirty other right. systems. Right. NHS in, in in Great Britain. Well, the OECD countries. There's right. there's thirty two countries and thirty two different variety right. flavors of the system. Right. So it's a system. So I don't. I've never. My background is I taught business operations management supply chain for a long time, decades, and. Business systems are never, you never take a business system against another business system and say one is better. You can't. Parts of one are, are much better than mm -hmm. another and it'll flip the other way. Now, some cases, um, a lot more parts may be good in one system than are good in another, mm -hmm. in which case you strong, form a strong uh, appreciation for the system you think has more good parts. No, I want to, I want to. And Canada, Canada is the one I would say has more on balance, has more good, well thought out pieces of the puzzle than the United States. You're has. a very diplomatic person is what I, I will say, because <laughs> I, I look as an, in, as both of us are engineers, but as a more, I guess, absolute engineer, I would look and I said, I look at outcomes. And if you look at the outcomes from one system over the other in the aggregate, just about every single system in the OCD, OECD comes out. Outperforms the United States. The United States. Yes. And I think that is, that gives, that's a, in my opinion, that's the answer that we, we, we look for. I, I agree. I mean, if, if you ask me, which would I personally prefer mm -hmm. to live with, the answer would be the Canadian system. Now, you told me a story that, that kind of boggled my mind. And first of all, we we're going to sort of touch on your wife's story just in, as it relates to healthcare, but you mentioned something that to me, uh, I, when I heard it, it, I just didn't think about. You said when you go to a doctor, or you seek healthcare in Canada, money never comes up as a topic. That's correct. Um, the closest, uh, let's see if I can fish it out. Um, the closest it comes is it's this a card. card. I mean, this is this might as well, for all per, intents and purposes, might right. be might as well be a Visa or Mastercard. Right. I right. mean, it has it does exactly the same thing. So whenever you need help, you go into a bar, you talk to the bartender, you get your drink, you have your meal, you chat with your friends, you, you chat with the bartender, they give you service, do all that stuff. The only money you talk to a bartender is when they bring you the bill and you hand them their, your Visa card. Right. Okay. Think that experience. And that's the Canadian experience. So they give you health care and you provide that as the... You you, up front, you up walk front. in, you walk in, you walk in and they need to know who you are. That's your ID card. That's your ID. So, and at least where I am, downtown Toronto, um, all of my records are electronic. Right. So when my family pra uh, practitioner sends me for a test, I go, I go to, uh, to get the test, I show my card. Well, that card allows them to look up my medical records before the test. Right. I mean, all that stuff is organized. It's all tied around. And the key is that it's a single 
point point of truth right. about who I am and where the money's coming from. Exactly, exactly. And there's a big concept in business about when you build business systems is establishing a single point of truth. That is one place you can always go reliably to and get the facts. And everybody can do it, so everybody can be on the same page. Unlike our system where one particular doctor, any patient comes in, he has to have a staff to tell him exactly what insurance company are you with and call them up, see what's covered. That's right. That no, that's that, and that is the that to me is the fundamental flaw and inefficiency in the United, in the U.S. system. U.S. system spends twenty five to thirty five percent of the of its healthcare dollar on administration. Not on administration. Trying to figure out who to stick the bill to. Right, right, right. I mean, it's not about paying the bill. It's not about delivering a service. There's nothing in there other than. Everybody's scurrying around like rats right. in, a, in a maze trying to figure out who's going to be the unlucky soul that gets stuck with a bill. The bill. <laughs> that's the whole, that's, that's almost a third, quarter to a third mm-hmm. of the total healthcare expenditure in the United States. Canada does not have that right. at all. Right. All right. So right there is any, any medical service you want to provide in Canada you know, there's minor stuff around the edges, but in theory, it's going to be 25 to 30 percent cheaper. Right. Just because that cost is not part of the equation at all. That is, that is him. So tell us a little bit about your recent experience okay. that probably would have bankrupted somebody here in the United States, and you had it in Canada. Well, the we just moved. My wife and I just moved from Atlanta. I mean, my background is I spent 20 years teaching at Auburn University. Mm-hmm. Then I took early retirement and lived for the past decade in, in uh, Atlanta, downtown Atlanta. And then last, uh, last August, we sold our, our condo mm-hmm. um, and moved to Toronto. And right. both my wife and I are Canadian citizens, well, mm-hmm. natives. We were born there. Mm-hmm. So we were able to move back. Were you American citizens too? Or yes, resident? Yeah. we're both, we're, we're dual. Uh, okay. Because we, over 35 years in the United States, I'd become naturalized. Right. And, but... You don't throw away, you know, don't change where you're born. So right. I'm still a Canadian citizen. Right. So was able to move back pretty seamlessly. Um, and to get health care, to get that little card, um, the only really bureaucratic thing I had to do is we had to have, we had to have a permanent place to live because mm. it's based on you, on where you're Your resident. Residence, right. Yeah, each like, province have a, it's each one has right. it. And, and plus all the paperwork has to go somewhere. They have to have a place to mail you and so on. So uh, it wasn't even when we moved into an apartment. It's when I had the signed lease from the apartment. I was able to go down to Service Ontario, the government office with one-stop shopping, show them the signed lease, and they handed me, you know, the equivalent of a temporary driver's license. They handed me a sheet of paper, which was my temporary health card. had the code that mattered. The card didn't matter. The code did. And two weeks later, the plastic card right. showed up in my mailbox. That's it. And now you are a covered citizen. I was covered from the moment I got that piece of paper with my code number on it. Right. The temp. And then you can go. You can go get health care. I can you- walk into any. Um, uh, they have a system there. I, basically, it's all run through. Um, now, in the U.S., my wife and I were first in the. In, in downtown Atlanta, we were mm-hmm. in the Emory healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I had 
U.S. pensions and have very good, you know, Medicare Part A, right. B, C, D, and and supplemental from the last one was Humana. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were well covered right. in the states, and I was in the uh, Emory system, and then in the Piedmont system in downtown Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and within those systems, we could sort of get anything we right. wanted. With that card, with the Ontario card, I can walk. Um, I go to my my family practice. You, they assign you. You have to have a family practice. Mm-hmm. You have to have a quarterback. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you do when you get the card, or even when you get the code number, mm-hmm. is phone a, um, a, a exchange or exchange, and they say they take your information and say okay, and then they go look for a family practice right. practitioner, and they say very clearly up front. If you don't like them, just call back and we'll get you another. Right. I mean, it's not like we're sticking them. But here, here's one we think, you know, the one we have right now is a five-minute walk. Right. Um, you know, those are, they had that criteria. And so my wife and I each have our own family practice. And right. And everything goes through them. Right. And they can, anything I need in the way of uh, services or um, diagnostics or testing or anything like that, um, if it makes medical sense, then he, right. he just writes a referral and boom, it's done. Right. When I go to get the test, I just show my card. Right. They knock it off. There's never a conversation about money. Right. There's never a conversation about bureaucracy. Right. The only bureaucracy even I've encountered in the Canadian system is bureaucracy if it had a specific medical meaning right. and requirement. It was... A, it was Exactly. I, I get exactly what you're talking about. You know, there there's a reason for that. Bureaucracy. Yeah. We're, we, when you're arguing over, when you're talking about when will I get another appointment, the right. other appointment is, well, when will it make medical sense right. for you to come back? Don't, no point coming back in two days. Nothing will have changed. Right. Uh, that, so to be in a, to go from the Emory and the Piedmont system, which are very sophisticated systems. Right. I mean, those are probably right at the top of U.S. medicine. Right. Uh, business practices. Right. Um, to to Canada, and um, it's just so clean and simple. Right. And because it's all through the same system, my records are available to everybody I go to. I don't have to. I don't have to make. You don't have to fill out a whole they list. They already of have them. Efficiency. If they've got my code, they've got they've got the access, and they already have. I code. tell you something that 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 they use in the United States to dissuade people from doing things like that. Right? They like to use this thing called privacy, not realizing you know. Oh, that's in having your records centralized like that is. is well, you got to trade off. You got to trap. Right. You can you can hide your medical condition from your doctors. Right. And you can be confident that they will not know right. uh, what you've had and where you've had it and what's right. happened. Um, and then they can make a mistake and kill you. And that's what people don't understand. But the other thing that they talk about with privacy is that, well, if, if everybody has your records, they can actually see it. And, and to my thing is, the only reason to hide your medical records in the United States system is to, to sort of con the system so that they don't know. Some entity doesn't find out that you had something before. Yeah, if you're running a, a really good, if you're condition. running a really good social security scam, right? Then that kind of privacy makes a hell of a lot of sense. Ex- I'd be all for it. Exactly. I mean, every social security scammer. I mean, but that that's 
when I say business systems, you got the same business system issues right. in every other business system. Exactly, exactly. You know, but did the supplier really put stuff in the container before they shipped it, or did it drop in the ocean? Anyway, Vic, I, I want to before we we close here. I want to go over that story about your wife. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about. You, something happened recently. Just tell us that sequence. Yeah, this is this is at, after we arrived in Canada, and my wife, um, she, my wife went to her family practice, right, and and said she was told she really needed to have uh, it was time to have some diagnostic. There were some signs and stuff like that. Uh, family practice doctor uh, pushed her mm -hmm. to go get the diagnostics. And set everything up. It was all done. I mean, boom, 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 boom. She went, got the diagnostics. They found a, they found an issue. Mm -hmm. um, it was going to require some fairly serious surgery. Mm -hmm. um, the next step is the lab that found the surgery. The doctor at the lab that found the surgery had already uh, went straight ahead and made um, a uh, referral. Mm -hmm. And where we are, we're very fortunate. There are five major research teaching hospitals mm -hmm. within a within a five minute drive. Wow! So I mean, they 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 just went around all these great hospitals and said, "Okay, who's got an opening?" Oh, okay, over there. My wife went there. Mm -hmm. Turns out the doctor is probably top twenty, top fifty in North America. Wow! Um, young guy. I mean, forties, sharp as a tack, mm -hmm. really nice. Um, and his performance was absolutely professional. Mm -hmm. I mean, as good as you, Emory and Piedmont would die and go to heaven if they could deliver that service. Right, right. It, and that, and you got some of the best insurance here in the United States, and it turns out that this ins this that's going to cost you nothing. Well, as I said, other than your taxes, Piedmont, or, Piedmont or Emory, on a on their best on their best day would have equaled what we got. Imagine that. Um, we, she went into hospital, she had surgery. Actually, before that, he, he wanted to be certain of the diagnosis. So she, she had full blood workup, ultrasound, MRI, CAT scan, whole everything. Boom, it took him about two weeks to get it all scheduled. Um, he looked at everything, took it to a, a team in, in one of the hospitals where they actually review mm -hmm. these cases as a group. And, uh, you know, so they get input from multiple eyes mm -hmm. on the problem. Came up with a plan, uh, involved surgery, mm -hmm. booked her into, uh, into a hospital. She went in, she had the surgery. She stayed three days, uh, uh, went home. She got 10 visits from a home um, support nurse, RN. Just to follow up. Make sure that, that follow up after the surgery, the surgery was going well, there was no infection, yada, yada, yada. Um, and she has regular appointments with a follow-up nurse at the hospital every couple of months now scheduled out mm -hmm. for life. Mm -hmm. um, as long as she wants them, as long as she needs them, she can have them. Mm -hmm. She can just go there. Total cost. Zero. Out of pocket. And no, sorry. It's not total cost a lot more. Out of pocket to us, zero. zero. But the truth, and then one of the things that I asked you, and we're coming close to the time that we have to close, but one of the things that I asked you was, 
uh, hey Vic, but did uh, isn't your aren't your taxes a hell of a lot more than in the United States? And your answer was a bit surprising. Well, it it it's hard to tell, but it's not hugely different. I mean, because first of all, the moment we came to Canada, I was able to drop the Medicare Part B and the Humana extended health right. that I was doing through my pension plan. So right there is about 500 US a month. A month that you uh, don't pay at all. That I don't pay at all. Gone. Gone. Um, now, are my taxes higher than that? Because of our my situation, it's actually a little hard. I have some business losses in a previous year. Right. They're carrying, they carry in the States. They don't apply in Canada. So I'll probably know next year. My sense is I'll pay a little more in Canada. Right. But For what it's worth. But not not remotely. Um, you know, it, it won't be egregious in any way. Right. And uh, the net effect is, but the peace of mind. The peace of mind. And you know that you can get the service when you want the service. So the fallacy that you have to wait. I tell people here in the United States, try to make an appointment with a specialist here in the U.S. Sometimes you're months away from being able to see a specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, uh, you'll be yeah. months away from seeing a specialist if it's a if it's an elective situation an elect- in yeah. Canada. I mean, right. specialists for elective sur- surgery are scarce everywhere in the world. Right. Um, so you're going to get that, and you know your mileage may vary. I mean, my mo- my mother had a hip replacement, and they made her wait six months. Four or five of those months, she was doing rehab. Right. Now, either that rehab was to uh, see if she really needed it after all. Yeah, I mean, was either was either to sort of a sneaky way of rationing the care, right? Or it was just damn good medicine. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't know which one it is. Right, I'm not going right, to say. Right. Overall, my sen- my sense is financially on the medical side, we're going to be close to a wash or somewhere reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows the system that's been built, which has its weaknesses. I mean, right. there's some areas that. Canadians, Canadians bitch about their healthcare system. Right. Everybody. Well, the only thing is when they do survey, if you do a survey of Canadians and say, do you, you know, are you satisfied with healthcare? They'll say no. If you ask them another question, would you trade your healthcare for the U.S.? The answer is hell no. <laughs> no, no, no. And I think that is where we ended. Vic, thank you so kindly for being Take a care. part of Politics and Right. I've enjoyed it.